The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When the crackdown came, it had this stultifying effect on on the foreign ministry and on embassies overseas. So that order came right from the top and Chinese diplomats, including then foreign minister Chen Chen, didn't know the details of how or when a crackdown might come. Chen actually learned from watching CNN. And the first instinct was this kind of, of prickly denial, you know? So that's that's oftentimes the place that Chinese diplomats go when they feel challenged is to is to kind of say nothing bad happens here you know you you've read a bunch of lies and you're biased against china and that's not necessarily because they believe it but that's just the safest thing to say when you're worried that you might get in trouble or you're not quite sure what the right course of action is and and so that was that was repeated across the foreign ministry and as time went on you know, diplomats got better with their talking points. They became more confident in the line that they wanted to push about, you know, that these students were a small and troublesome minority and they were dealt with accordingly, but you're lying if you say that there were a lot of casualties. I'm Bryce Klen, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 22nd, 2021. I sat down with Peter Martin, a defense policy and intelligence reporter at Bloomberg. Peter is the author of the new book, China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, which traces the history of China's diplomatic corps from the founding of the Chinese Communist Party to the present. We covered a lot of ground, from Zhou Enlai's impact on the Chinese foreign ministry to the Biden administration's first interactions with China's top diplomats. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 22nd, China's Civilian Army with Peter Martin. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. So why did you decide to write a history of the Chinese foreign ministry? Yeah, so well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for thanks for hosting me. So I, I arrived back in China after a few years away in early 2017. And, you know, it was I was very struck by how much progress China had made economically and, and militarily. And, and at the same time, it seemed to have this amazing opportunity with the Trump administration, you know, kind of going full throttle, picking fights with US allies and attacking international institutions, China seemed to have this real opportunity to to make progress on its reputation. And yet, somehow that that wasn't happening. And 
you know, this emerging superpower was kind of missing this chance to improve the way that the world saw it. And I started thinking about like, you know, why is it that China struggles to communicate? And the more that I got into the topic, the more I came to see Chinese diplomats as kind of a microcosm of that struggle. When I would interact with them on a personal level, they would be uh, suave and charming and sometimes funny, could speak multiple foreign languages. But when they got up on stage in the foreign ministry uh, to do briefings or they sat down with their foreign counterparts for meetings, they were stilted. And as the years went on, actually kind of increasingly belligerent. And so I, I, I kind of grew fascinated in the theme and thought, hey, they could, you know, there could be a book in this. Definitely. It was a very interesting book. And the, so let's start with the title, China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. I think a lot of our listeners have probably heard the term wolf warrior diplomacy sort of in passing in the news. Maybe a, a lot of politicians like to use that, use wolf warrior diplomacy. So I was wondering if you could just tell us where does the term wolf warrior diplomacy come from and what does it sort of come to symbolize? Yeah, so... This blockbuster movie, Wolf Warrior 2, came out in 2017, and it's kind of a a Rambo-style movie about a Chinese hero fighting foreign bad guys on the continent of Africa, and it, it was this runaway success at the Chinese box office and came to symbolize this like new brand of confident, assertive Chinese nationalism. And, you know, that it was kind of its own phenomenon. At the same time, over that 2017 timeframe, and then, you know, accelerating during the spread of the coronavirus pandemic, Chinese diplomats started acting in this really bold and assertive and, and sometimes kind of offensive way. And foreign media began to dub this behavior wolf warrior diplomacy, kind of named after that that movie and the the assertive brand of nationalism it represented. So let's let's rewind a little bit and go back to the beginning. You write that Zhou Enlai was the founding father of the Chinese Foreign Ministry. I was wondering if you could just describe his life and how his personality is even reflected in the foreign ministry up to today. Yeah, sure. So Joe grew up in this kind of moderately well-to-do family that had had hit on hard times. So he was born at the very end of the 19th century, and he he grew up raised by an aunt who doted on him. And you know, as he as as he grew up, he watched China come from a place of 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 international weakness and you know a place where a lot of its population was struggling, and he had this strong desire to to improve the fate of the country and overcome what he and lots of people around him saw as uh, a period of humiliation for China. And as, as he grew up, he was he was increasingly drawn to Marxism as a way to pursue that and became one of the early members of the, the Chinese Communist Party. And Zhou was really one of the first people in the party to start thinking about how this underground political movement, which was which was persecuted and, and had to defend itself uh, using armed struggle and eventually aimed to take power in China, how this movement would need to build ties with the outside world. So he started pulling together a small band of smart 
bright intellectuals, some of them former journalists, all of them, you know, playing playing some role in China's armed struggle and tried to start building a group of people who could do that bridge building with the outside world. And when the communists eventually took power in 1949, he took that small group and added to it a whole bunch of other kind of peasant revolutionary soldiers and and fresh graduates and and put together the Chinese foreign ministry. So one thing that that you you talk about is how in the earliest days of the, the, the Chinese Communist Party and during the Civil War, when they were sort of headquartered in Yan'an, the Chinese foreign ministry entertained a lot of some foreigners came to visit. And I was wondering if you could talk about how that period specifically shaped the foreign ministry's perception of the outside world and how it interacted with with people from that world. Yeah, so I think that I think that that period was really crucial in the evolution of the Communist Party in general, and and especially its its foreign affairs. So this was a time when the communists found themselves really isolated. They had finished a long march across China, which which now is kind of seen as this you know, glorious moment in Communist Party history that was actually a, a, a long and bruising retreat across uh, the heartlands of the country. They found themselves in a, in a very poor, very rural part of China and, and desperately needed to build bridges. And one of the techniques that they used to do that was this kind of Leninist-inspired focus on friendship, finding individuals in foreign societies who would be potentially amenable to the CCP's message and offering them access and the label of friends of China, friends of the CCP. And so the best example of this approach is an American journalist called Edgar Snow, who lived in China in the uh, 1930s and had been looking for a long, long time to for an opportunity to interview Mao. Snow was was brought to Yan'an, this, this kind of isolated communist base, and he was treated to banquets, marching band, fanfares, extended FaceTime with Mao, Zhou, and other leaders. And, you know, given their line on, on what was going on in China and, 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 and what the CCP had in store for China's future, when he came to write up his findings into the famous book Red Star Over China, Mao and other leaders actually, you know, heavily censored what he wrote and, and edited it and 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 changed the messaging to to suit their own needs. But you know, in the short term it worked for Snow and it, it was a big commercial success. And that approach of finding an individual who is amenable to China's message, targeting them with messages that are that are going to be successful and rewarding them with with access and this label of friendship came to really become a a sort of core element of the way that China does its foreign affairs work and 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 also its external propaganda work. Are there any examples today of of any like modern friends of of China as you would say? What one one very recent example I mean, I don't, I don't know if he he actually conformed to the behavior that they had hoped for, but China attempted to use the label for uh, Terry Branstad, the former U.S. ambassador to to China, uh, who had spent time with Xi Jinping 
earlier in in both of their careers. So they applied the label to him. And another person who is consistently rewarded with that title would be Henry Kissinger, who famously helped the the Nixon administration in its diplomatic breakthrough with China and has met with every single Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. And, you know, for, for, for Kissinger, this provides a way for him to maintain high-level access in China and then turn that access in China into, you know, foreign policy advice for each successive incoming administration in the U.S., you know, he, I mean, he, he clearly has his, his own take on, on, on world politics. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to attribute too much to, to, to kind of CCP methods there. But certainly, he's someone who China has consistently felt comfortable applying that, that label to. Right. So I want to, I want to return for a second to Zhou Enlai and his personal relationship with Mao Zedong. You paint a, a a really, or you do a really good job of describing in the book how his personal relationship with Mao sort of shaped the foreign ministry as an institution, its position within the Chinese government. And I was wondering if you could describe that. Yeah, so Joe was this kind of suave, sophisticated operator. He spoke French, German, English, and Japanese. He was kind of, in many ways, everything that Mao Zedong wasn't Mao was this tough revolutionary who you know rejected all forms of kind of softness and decadence famously said that that revolution was not a dinner party Mao wouldn't brush his teeth he didn't like to bathe he you know was often quite dismissive of foreign cultures and and certainly of the need to to study them in using any kind of uh, academic or, or intellectual approach. But Joe started off in the Communist Party in a, in a position which was actually superior to Mao's. And, and gradually, through the mid-1930s, Mao's star rose as the Communist Party's previous approach to trying to launch urban insurrections failed. And as Mao eclipsed Joe politically their relationship changed from being one of equals or even one where Joe was was somewhat superior to Mao to one where Joe became a an almost total subordinate to the chairman. And he, his role was always important and indispensable and crucial. And I think that's why he maintained a position at the very top of China's political system until his death in 1976, because he had this skill set and this this acumen for diplomacy that that Mao struggled with, but yeah, he he settled into this this kind of very subordinate role with Mao, which in some ways resembles the role that diplomacy plays in the in the Chinese political system writ large. Right, and in that in that earlier period when Joe was forming the the, the foreign ministry, he recruited really the only organized institution, it seems like, outside of the Communist Party structure was the Chinese military, and they recruited a lot of generals to be diplomats. What were some of the effects of initially having generals serve as diplomats? Yeah, so so the whole foreign ministry was was founded with this idea that, you know, we, we don't know how to do diplomacy. And the Communist Party thinks of, you know, the outside world as a threatening place 
that might undermine its its political its hard won political legitimacy at home. But you know, we do know how to fight uh, wars. We do know how to launch armed insurrections and to train a military force to follow the will of of the Communist Party in a very strict and disciplined way. And so that ethos that had helped to to launch the Communist Party's multi-decade battle against the nationalists in China became the ethos that, that motivated the way that the foreign ministry worked. And so what that meant in practice was that Chinese diplomats would be unfailingly loyal to the party, just like the People's Liberation Army was loyal to the party. They would be uh, disciplined to a fault, obeying orders whenever instructed, and actually often moving around in pairs to make sure that there was always someone to, to check up on them. And also that they would display you know, what they called at the time a fighting spirit whenever China's interests were challenged. And so that fighting spirit, which uh, I guess we've seen uh, recently in, 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 in these kind of wolf warrior-ish displays was something that was really there from the outset in the foreign ministry. So from a efficacy standpoint, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages to having such a rigid and inflexible diplomatic core? I think the big advantage is that um, the world is never in any doubt what China's position is on issues that really matter to the Communist Party. So. I don't think there's a diplomat in the world who is unclear that China believes Taiwan is an alienable part of of China's territory, or that it will respond very abrasively if criticized over its human rights record in Tibet or or Xinjiang. You know, so that's that's one advantage, just the the consistency of of messaging. Another which is related to that is that you know, in, in the US and other Western countries, sometimes when our agencies disagree with each other, that is on display to the whole world, right? Like during the Trump administration, it was pretty clear that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin had a quite different agenda for China that was a little bit more focused on economic cooperation than, say, Peter Navarro did. And so that for the Chinese, that was an opportunity for China to get close to Mnuchin and to try to marginalize Navarro from the decision-making process. In China, those kind of interagency conflicts, they exist, but they're much, much harder to discern from the outside. And so that makes it difficult for interlocutors of China to, to play one element off against another. So I'd say those are the, the kind of important advantages which are real strengths in a world where uh, there's there's chaos all around us. And often it seems like Western countries are not able to get their own internal house in order. But the, but the, the weaknesses, I would say, uh, for the most part, outweigh those, those strengths. And the, the fundamental weakness, I think, kind of comes down to the heart of what diplomacy is all about, which is this ability to persuade others that it's in their best interests to follow a, a, a course of policy that you favor. And China has proved, uh, I think, over the over the decades, and especially in recent years, 
that it's it's very good at using economic inducements to win others over with its Belt and Road Initiative and its promises of foreign investment. And it's it's pretty good at using threats as well. You know, in the, in the case of its coercive economic diplomacy against South Korea and Australia, it is really able to to marshal the full weight of the Chinese state behind, you know, its 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 diplomatic anger. But it's not good at, at persuading others. If you look at international opinion polling during the course of the Trump administration, China's image suffered even before the outset of the coronavirus, and then especially after the virus had spread around the world. And it, it you know, it's 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 clear that China is not particularly good at that core diplomatic art of persuasion. Right. And and something that you touched on a little bit earlier were, were the domestic politics of China and how that affects the diplomats. And one recurring feature of the book is that in times of domestic political crackdowns, China's diplomats, by nature of having the most contact with the outside world, are often the first people that are suspected of any sub- subversive or accused of any subversive activities. One extreme example of this was during the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. I was wondering if you could talk about the the lessons that the Chinese foreign ministry took away from that period. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I think that you know domestic politics is is king in in Chinese diplomacy, and I think that something you know something that's quite hard for us to appreciate as as outsiders looking in is that when Chinese diplomats act assertively and aggressively, and you know they're spreading conspiracy theories around the world or uh, shouting at foreign counterparts. Some of that comes from confidence, but a lot of it comes from insecurity and worry about, you know, what's going to happen to them on a personal level if if things at home go in a bad direction. And so Chinese diplomats watched multiple rounds of political purges inside the foreign ministry in the 50s, 60s, 70s and onwards. In the 1960s, as you said, in the Cultural Revolution, they watched diplomats beat up ambassadors, lock them in cellars, publicly humiliate them. Now, that's their own ambassadors, right? That's their own ambassadors. That's their own ambassadors. <laughs> and, you know, so I think that that when when diplomats see that there is a kind of period of political tension going on in China, or there is a move toward, you know, cracking down on opposition or one leader consolidating control over the party, they're pretty good at thinking about, okay, so what have these signals meant for us in the past? And and what do they mean about how we should behave in the future? And so under Xi Jinping, you know, she has launched a sweeping anti-corruption campaign that has punished more than 1.5 million officials. He's abolished presidential term limits. He's experimenting with re-education camps uh, to subdue the, the far western region of Xinjiang. And he's also talking about how China needs to play this central role in the world and stand tall in the East. At one point, he even wrote a, a, a handwritten note to the foreign ministry instructing them to display more fighting spirit. And so if you're a Chinese diplomat and you're aware of how high the stakes can be when you get on the wrong side of China's political system, and at the same time, 
you have a leader who is telling you to be confident, be assertive and act tough, you're going to pretty rapidly get in line behind that agenda that he set out. And so, so I really think we've seen that play out in the last few years. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One really important date that you talk about in the book is 1989, the Tiananmen Square massacre really rocked the, the diplomatic corps. And the late 80s, early 90s is when, you know, the Eastern Bloc was falling, the collapse of the Soviet Union happened. What was the reaction inside the, inside the foreign ministry and in their, in their embassies abroad? I mean, you, you write about some defections even that happened right after the Tiananmen Square massacre. But I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the broader effects. Yeah. So, you know, before the student protest broke out, China was coming out of one of its periods of, of kind of charming the world and relative openness. So ever since 49, there have been these, these two tendencies in Chinese diplomacy, one towards these kind of assertive wolf warrior type tactics and one towards charming the world and, and, and building influence and winning friends and, China was was in the middle of, of one of those kind of charm offensive periods. It was opening up its markets. It was cooperating with the US in opposition to the Soviet Union. And it was very gradually sending signals that it wanted maybe not to liberalize its political system, but at least to reform it in ways that would make it more institutionalized and more predictable. So these were all seen as very good things. And, and, and Chinese diplomats kind of oftentimes had quite a warm relationship with their foreign interlocutors. You know, the, the embassy in Washington, I spoke to, to former US diplomats who had hosted Chinese diplomats at their homes and played mahjong with them. And it was, it was a period of warmness. And it was a period when the student protests broke out, where a lot of the diplomats inside the foreign ministry shared the optimism of of the students in Tiananmen Square and and maybe some of them agreed with their prescriptions for the country and and some of them didn't but but it was quite widely seen as in the early stages at least a a positive thing and 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 some people inside the foreign ministry actually organized donations to send to the students in the square so there was there was quite a lot of sympathy when the crackdown came it had this stultifying effect on on the foreign ministry and on embassies overseas. So that order came right from the top and Chinese diplomats, including then foreign minister Chen Chichen, didn't know 
the details of how or when a crackdown might come. Chen actually learned from watching CNN while on a trip to Latin America. And the first instinct was this kind of, of prickly denial, you know? So that's, that's oftentimes the place that Chinese diplomats go when they feel challenged is to, is to kind of say, nothing bad happens here. You know, you, you've read a bunch of lies and you're biased against China. And that's not necessarily because they believe it, but that's just the safest thing to say when you're worried that you might get in trouble or you're not quite sure what the right course of action is. And, and so that was, that was repeated across the foreign ministry. And as time went on, you know, diplomats got better with their talking points. They became more confident in the line that they wanted to push about, you know, that these students were a small and troublesome minority and they were dealt with accordingly, but you're lying if you say that there were a lot of casualties. But at the same time, they started pursuing again this charm offensive, which was aimed at winning over international opinion and making sure that the international environment was suitable for maintaining the kind of economic growth that China had been enjoying at home. And sort of the, the culmination of that charm offensive was the 2008 Olympics. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You know, the 2008 Olympics were kind of an international coming out party for China. This, this was a country that had been partly of its own making and, and partly because of the ideological strictures of the Cold War that it, it had been isolated for decades. And it, it, it didn't fit in to a world that was talking about the end of history and the you know the, the the democratic moment and it wasn't it wasn't clear how this kind of hybrid post-communist state would would fit in and so the the olympics really represented a validation from from china's perspective a validation of the country's governance system and the idea that it might be accepted as an equal internationally and and you know, that, that, that moment of celebration was really a testament to, to how effective Chinese diplomacy can sometimes be, even with all of the restrictions that the foreign ministry places on its diplomats. Right. So, so after that, you, you, talk, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the rise of Xi Jinping and how he really shaped, shaped the foreign ministry. And one thing I think it's, it's might be useful to sort of characterize is that a lot of the themes of wolf warrior diplomacy that you're talking about were present in China's diplomacy up to like, let's say 2013, when Xi Jinping came into power, but they really, would you say they became more pronounced or were used more often and more publicly? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that that's something that people who perhaps don't focus on China a, a whole lot don't, don't appreciate is how big a turning point the 2008 to nine a global financial crisis was for China. So that that was a period when you know, Chinese elites looked at Western political systems and thought, you know what, these guys are being pretty indecisive in their response to this challenge. And our system has held up pretty well. They, they launched a massive stimulus package, which caused all kinds of trouble um, for their economy later, but was was widely praised at the time. And you know, as they came out of the the kind of warm glow of their their treatment of the crisis, they they 
felt increasingly confident and, and began to take an increasingly assertive line in their diplomacy. That also was exacerbated by their response to the 2011 Arab Spring, where they, they realized that the, the forces that had threatened autocratic governments, the, the wake of the Cold War was still very much alive and kicking and, and decided that they had to take a much harder political line at home against opposition. So I think that in many ways, the, the, the seeds of the approach that, that Xi Jinping would later, would later push were kind of laid in that 2008, 9, 10, 11 period. But she took that approach and he made it more confident and, uh, and more consistent. So he spoke very openly about China's ambitions in the world in a way that the previous leaders had kind of shied away from. He talked about China's system as kind of an acceptable endpoint and an alternative to Western systems and something that actually should be emulated by other countries and that might have lessons for the outside world. And these, these were themes that Chinese academics had been playing with for a long time, but that politicians had been very cautious to put out there. And she just, she just came out and, and kind of used that message proudly and, and, and boldly. And at the same time, he consolidated his power, focused on ideology, began using tools which had not been seen in, in China's political system, certainly on that scale for a long time, like re-education camps. You know, so you had this, this confluence of like political crackdown at home and bold, assertive diplomacy, which really came to characterize the Xi era and kind of brought us up to the moment when the coronavirus broke out. So one of one of Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy initiatives you mentioned earlier is the Belt and Road Initiative, and that's being executed in large part through China's state-owned enterprises. I was just curious, and this might be a little bit too specific of a question, but what is the foreign ministry's relationship with state-owned enterprises? They don't exert control over them, correct? Yeah, that is exactly correct. It's a great question. So this was a, a kind of perennial headache for Chinese diplomats that state-owned enterprises in the 2000s and 2010s would go out, make investment deals, even make promises about Chinese foreign policy that the, that the foreign ministry had no influence over. And they, you know, they continue to be very, very important players in the Belt and Road. The best way to think of it, I think, is that all state organs in China are subordinate to the Communist Party. The SOEs report to a whole bunch of different government organizations, but the largest ones report to a regulator in Beijing, which reports to the Chinese cabinet, which reports to the Communist Party. And the foreign ministry kind of follows a separate and completely stovepipe chain that also ultimately leads to the Communist Party. So the foreign ministry is not able to exert any kind of direct influence over them. But I would say that in recent years, those kind of coordination problems have been reduced a little bit, not thanks to the, the foreign ministry becoming any more powerful, but thanks to the fact that she has consolidated the power of the party and his personal power over the party apparatus as well so effectively that nowadays 
while China has all of the problems that any large bureaucracy has in terms of coordination, people are kind of singing from the same hymn sheet a little bit more. So the foreign ministry's role in, in something like the Belt and Road Initiative, the, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, an infrastructure project, it sort of depends on convincing a lot of countries to let China come in and, and build a lot of things. Would you say that one feature of the foreign ministry's role in this is to kind of be like a PR campaign for, to, to execute a PR campaign for, for this project? Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. I think it also provides them with a, a very tangible form of inducement for countries, right? Like if you, if you think of the response of Southern European countries like Greece and Portugal to the Belt and Road Initiative, many governments throughout Asia and Africa, it's been pretty positive. And that, you know, there are worries about debt trap diplomacy. There are worries about over-reliance on, on Chinese investment and the security implications that, that might come from that. But ultimately, China has identified something that those societies, you know, investments in infrastructure as a need that those societies really have and a need that China might be able to help fill. And so although the foreign ministry is not really driving that project or managing any of its on-the-ground implementation, it does provide quite a compelling talking point, especially when you're speaking with governments in the developing world where you can say, you know, those you're enjoying those Belt and Road investments. It would be terrible if, if something were to happen to them if you said the wrong thing about Xinjiang. So I think, I think a PR campaign, and then I think it, it provides the foreign ministry with a good talking point too. Right. I want to return to the diplomats themselves for a second. The, a, a lot of them had some period of education in the West, in the United States, and in the United Kingdom. And I'm curious about your experience in reading some of these diplomats' memoirs and talking with them. What did they make of their time that they spent in places like the United States and the, in the UK? And how does that shape their thinking and perception of the US today? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. I guess I guess the the proviso that I'd set on it would be, you know, it's, this is this has changed massively throughout the party history, and so, you know, in the very early days, the experiences of Zhou Enlai and other leaders like Deng Xiaoping in France and and other foreign countries had quite a profound effect on them. You know, Zhou looked at the conditions of French laborers. And, and thought to himself, you know what, there is something wrong with the way that this society treats its workers. And really, his turn toward Marxism was, was accelerated by that experience. Once the party gained power, the experience of studying in foreign countries has always been mediated by the party's desire to exert control over its members, whether they're at home or abroad. And so when diplomats have, have gone to study in, in foreign countries, you know, and especially recently under Xi Jinping, the, the buddy rule, the idea that they'll move around in pairs has been enforced quite strictly. And so, so it's, quite, it's quite difficult for them to have a, a kind of pure experience of, of living in these nations. Just to, just to jump in here, there's one really kind of funny anecdote about the the buddy system that you that you tell when one diplomat was was abroad and he wanted to go on a date with someone and he had to bring his buddy. Is that am I right in that? 
Yeah, he had to bring an entire kind of troop of trainee Chinese diplomats with him to make sure that he didn't say the uh, the wrong thing to this Vietnamese woman who had invited him on a date. Uh, it was pretty disastrous. It's hard enough to go on first dates at, uh, at any time, let alone with, you know, eight, nine people there looking over your shoulder and checking that your messaging conforms with the wishes of the party center. You know, that I mean, that's a great example, actually, because it, it shows the way in which, like, this guy was having a very organic uh, interaction with this this Vietnamese woman, and it was it was suddenly so tightly controlled by the by the party apparatus that it became almost meaningful as a source of people to people interaction. Meaningless as a source of people to people interaction. I would say, in general, there's been kind of this this arc that China has gone on. So when diplomats started both studying abroad and living abroad in the 1980s in, in, in larger and larger numbers in Western countries, and as China was looking to change its own economic model, diplomats in some cases were, were really deeply impressed by the way that Western societies worked. And so you know, the best example of this is, is actually Xi Jinping's first father-in-law, a guy called Ke Hua was sent to Margaret Thatcher's Britain in the early 1980s. His son got sick and he was, the son was treated at a British hospital free and even, you know, given food and milk and, and things. And, and, and Kerhua kind of looked at this and thought, wait, this is not the oppressive capitalist West that I've been thinking of. And Kerr actually even began thinking about how, you know, what maybe markets are, work more effectively than we've been taught. Maybe revolution is not coming to Great Britain as we have been predicting for a long time and, and even began to think about democracy and, and how that might work back in China. But when you read more recent accounts and talk to people who have lived abroad more recently, both, both as students and as diplomats, I would say that the impression of the West tends to become much, much more negative. You know, people will say, you know, I can't believe how how dangerous it is on the streets of the US or and some of this stuff where they're talking about like social inequalities here and across Europe or problems of of political systems being incapable of making decisions or taking decisive action. Some of that stuff is talking points, right? Some of it's propaganda that they are uh, regurgitating. But I think all of us who live here also know there's like there's an element of that analysis which 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 hits at the truth sometimes and so it is quite interesting to to kind of track that evolution of like diplomats going abroad and thinking hey we have something to learn from these societies to wow these guys are really messing things up and i'm you know i'm proud of the role that the communist party plays in determining china's future that's that's quite a transition and as I said, it's, it's a talking point, but it's also something that they believe and we kind of have to take seriously. Right, right. Moving to, to just another another theme of the, the Chinese foreign ministry, and, and you tell it through a number of anecdotes, is that China's diplomats sort of always look for the smallest detail or like smallest potential slight that might happen. And, you know, a couple of days ago, President Biden met with, with Putin and some media commentators sort of joked that, oh, you know, we're all going to have to analyze how that handshake looked. And, you know, it's just it's just one meeting. But 
for for some members of the Chinese foreign ministry, you write that that stuff kind of really matters. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's it flies in the face of of how some commentators think of China being this kind of forward thinking, strategizing, long term power. And when you when you delve into memoirs of diplomats or or start to look at the way they spend their time, it's often focused on these incredibly tactical uh, small details that have very little to do with the grander scheme of things. And and I think the reason for that is that in China's foreign policy apparatus and for Chinese diplomats, there's there's kind of no such thing as a low stakes engagement. You know, if you've been told that you need to uphold China's national pride, you need to stop the Republic of China on Taiwan from gaining any kind of foothold in international opinion or or advancing its reputation, and you need to constantly be vigilant against any slight against China, then you're going to be focused on those kind of tiny details. And, you know, a, a great example played out last year in Fiji, where there was a, res- a diplomatic reception held by Taiwan, the ta- Taiwan's kind of trade office in, in Fiji, where and, and there was a cake that was displayed that had the Republic of China flag on it. Chinese diplomats showed up to the venue and caused such a disturbance that they, they literally started a fist fight with Taiwanese diplomats on scene and, and sent one of them to hospital with a mild concussion. And, you know, that resulted, I, I would suggest, from pro- probably from like nervousness on the part of those Chinese diplomats, that if we don't stop this politically incorrect message going out, we could face consequences. You know, we've been told, uphold China's national pride and stop Taiwan making any advances. And here is a cake that threatens that objective and so we better go after it pretty hard and it it seems absurd but it's actually it's a pretty good example of how these incentives work on the ground so moving to some more recent events and and just sort of going up to a little bit higher stakes meetings at least some that american observers would consider higher stakes meetings back in march the biden administration's senior diplomats secretary of state blinken and national security advisor sullivan they met with with some China's top diplomats in Anchorage, Alaska, and both sides at a press conference that kind of, or I guess a, a joint appearance that sort of went awry. They exchanged grievances for a little bit. What did you What did you make of that meeting? I think I think that meeting was a great opportunity for Yang Jiechi. Yang is the most established America hand in China's foreign ministry. He has had a relationship with the Bush family dating back to the nineteen seventies. And his, you know, he was China's ambassador in Washington in the aftermath of 9-11. And he's now a member of the ruling Politburo, making him China's most senior diplomat. And he has kind of made a career of sometimes, you know, being quite charming and funny and, and knowing a great deal about US society and being fully on top of everything that's going on there. And then sometimes launching into these just lengthy aggressive diatribes about Taiwan and Tibet and, and, and whatever is upsetting him at the time, which always seemed to be, you know, highly 
choreographed and 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 very very calculated and probably are aimed at making sure that he looks tough enough to the audience that's watching him back home you know the leadership in the foreign ministry and and now the the top leadership in the person of Xi Jinping and I think that's what happened at Anchorage during these meetings so Yang I think he was allotted a two or three minute time period to speak and he ended up talking for 17 minutes and he you know he listed the the killing of black Americans on the streets of the United States and he said that the United States was in no position to talk down to to China and it was really this opportunity for uh, kind of an airing of grievances after the Trump era, but also an attempt to, I think, send a signal to the world that, okay, America says it's back, but look at us here. We're sitting down as equals with the American Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and, you know, I'm not going to take anything from them. I'm going to fiercely defend China's interests. And so it was also a statement of of China's perception of its new position in the international system. But what's interesting is that although Yang went on this very public diatribe against against US politicians, as soon as the cameras left the room, I understand that that he was much more cordial and he was, you know, he was right down to business with his his interlocutors. And so I think a lot of the time with with Wolf Warrior diplomacy, it's important to bear in mind that the audience isn't necessarily the foreign person in the room. It's oftentimes the Chinese politician watching back home. One thing that I that I took away from the book was that sort of mid to even high level meetings with Chinese diplomats, the chances are they're not going to be as productive as they might be with other countries because of some of the factors that we've talked about already. And one sort of ongoing debate, if you will, in, in, in observers of of diplomacy is how much of an effect the personal relationship of the leader of a country has with another country. How much, how much of an effect does that have on relations between the two? And president Biden often like to say on the campaign trail that he spent the most time with Xi Jinping out of any other world leader. And when he was vice president and, and has, has a, has a solid relationship with Xi Jinping. There's been some reporting recently that Biden is planning on meeting with Xi Jinping soon is there anything in particular that you'll be looking for in that yeah i mean i i think it's biden's transformation when it comes to his relationship with xi is really fascinating so if you look back 10 years ago when biden was vice president and xi was kind of preparing to take the helm in in china both of them talked quite openly about their their close relationship even the idea that they might they might be developing a, a personal friendship, and that's something, of course, which Joe Biden had has has emphasized in his approach to diplomacy, not just with China, but but across the board. the The idea that personal relationships matter, and his his comments to reporters just this week during his his Europe trip were really fascinating in that regard. He said, "You know, I I know Xi Jinping well, but let's be clear." this is not friendship, it's just business. And I think that that probably represents uh, a recognition on Biden's part that, you know, direct contact and direct communication is really important. But but Chinese leaders spend 
maybe more time than any other group of political elites in the world thinking about the international correlation of forces around them and the strengths and weaknesses of their adversaries and whether, uh, for example, US allies are working in concert to, to halt China's rise. And the Biden administration seems to have, have recognized that ultimately China's behavior is going to be much more driven by whether or not China thinks that the US is strong, whether its house is in order at home, whether it's capable of getting India and Japan and European countries to work in concert against some of the Chinese behavior it objects to. It's it's going to be much more driven by that than it is whether Biden has a good, friendly, personal relationship with Xi. Right. So my last question for you, returning to to the Chinese foreign ministry, in your conversations with some diplomats for this book, did you notice anything striking about the younger members of the foreign ministry, the people who will, who will lead, who will sort of lead the institution 20, 30 years down the line? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, I would say that the overwhelming impression I have is that, you know, they're, they're smart, they're curious, they're intellectual, but they are proud of as far as i can discern right it's not like it's easy to have you know free-willing conversations with these people but as far as i can discern they are proud of china's political system they're proud of the role that that china is playing in the world they enjoy the respect that china's new power kind of bestows on on them by by proxy and they are pretty optimistic about about China's future. And, you know, these these are smart, reflective people, right? And so when you read between the lines a little bit, you might be able to discern a little discomfort with some of the political tactics that she has used, or frustration that they can't, you know, when they study abroad, they can't interact with Westerners unless they're in pairs. You know, that like, they, they chafe at these restrictions, just like, like any of us would. But on the whole, they feel pretty good and, and and pretty optimistic about China's future and about its political system. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for, for joining me, Peter. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 